Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Phil Mitchell's greatest role may be to have played the treasurer of the governing Scottish National Party. At least it looked like Phil Mitchell to me as he was huckled, shanghaied and taken off to the pokey for a 12-hour grilling by the Police Scotland. And this follows, of course, Mr Nicola Sturgeon, the chief executive officer of the SNP, who last week was huckled similarly ignominiously into the back of a paddy wagon. Not the Dunfermline passion wagon, which may or may not be relevant to the police inquiries. That is too behind bars in a police pound. I reiterate my offer to buy the said passion wagon, not for passion, but to take around Scotland on an anti-SNP bandwagon. I'll start the bidding at £10,000, officer, if you'll let me have it when the time is right. That leaves only one standing. The three signatories of the SNP's annual accounts, which are the proximate reason for the police investigation. You'll recall the £600,000 ring-fenced fund for an independence campaign, which not resting in the accounts so much as woven through the accounts, turns out to have been spent on many wild and wonderful things, the least of them being a campaign for independence. Woven through the accounts, well, we'll see. Both of these men are innocent until proven guilty, as will Nicola Sturgeon, undoubtedly the next to be arrested. Indeed, according to the London Times, Scottish edition, now running on the press, that arrest may come tomorrow. If it does, it answers the question as to why she so abruptly demitted office as Scotland's First Minister just a couple of months after assuring everyone there was still plenty of gas in her tank or lead in her pencil. I forget which metaphor she used. And all those feminists and couch potatoes on the London sofa shows who said it was about her right to privacy, her uh, becoming tired of selfies, not being able to let her hair down, so to speak, not being able to express herself, and how she was undoubtedly destined for a big job in the European Union or in an NGO like David Miliband, perhaps over in the United States on hundreds of thousands of pounds a year. All of that was a tidal wave of guff. If the Times is right and she is arrested this morning, then that is why she departed from office in such a hurry. Get the door frank and off she was in a puff of smoke and perhaps tomorrow we'll understand why. I'm not going to go into the case, of course, but it's beginning to look to me like the hapless Hamza Yusuf, the new 
First Minister of Scotland is a dead man walking. This government of his cannot possibly sustain this level of pressure, dependent as it is on a tiny group of crazed section, gardening section, government partners, the so-called Scottish Greens, who care far more about personal pronouns and transgenderism than they have ever cared for the Scottish countryside, for the Scottish environment. Indeed, a significant number of them aren't even Scottish at all. They're not Scottish, they're not green. They're freaks. It's a freak show, the Scottish Green Party. And the first act of Hamza Youssef just yesterday was to scrap the one policy that they had forced the SNP government into adopting and postponed it for 10 months, I predict it will never be seen again. They, of course, were also the uh, trailblazers for the so-called Gender Recognition Act, which uh, permitted men, merely by so declaring, to transform themselves into women, ending up in women's prisons with all the horrors that we know are attendant upon that. They were also the trailblazers in the so-called Hate Crimes Act, which made it a criminal offence in Scotland. Luckily, I'm not there. Even in your own house, perhaps especially in your own house, around your own dinner table, with your own family, made it a crime for me to use the words I've just used in relation to people's orientation, people's gender uh, choices. Anyone who fell foul of that act risked prosecution and prison, even if the words were uttered in their own house. Seems to me only a matter of time before the Scottish Greens jump ship, and it seems to me, therefore, only a matter of time before Hamza has to demit office, hopefully calling a new election in all these new circumstances. He'll be familiar with the words I'm using now. Uh, the circumstances have changed, and a new election to the Scottish Parliament is more than overdue. Hamza looks to me like a patsy, the Lee Harvey Oswald of Scottish politics. He's been handed this poison chalice. He looks bewildered, haunted already, and he's only been in office a couple of weeks. And if he did not know the things he now claims not to have known, then he was fooled. If he did know, and he's pretending he didn't know, that truth will be out, as all truths are now coming out in a torrent in Scottish politics. Bobby Kennedy Jr., what a name to have when you're running for office, is off and running in a poignant and very moving and powerful address in Boston. Today, he launched his bid to be the Democratic Party's candidate in the presidential election of 2024. To have a Kennedy rather than a Biden in the White House, well, wouldn't that be a fine thing? Mr. Kennedy does not, for reasons of affliction, have the uh, beautiful musical brogue of his father. Although his physical resemblance to both his father and his mother still alive at the age of 95, God bless Ethel Kennedy, 
95 years young, and apparently neither she nor any other member of the Kennedy family wants Bobby Kennedy to run for the Democratic nomination this time. But run he is. He is his own man. He's a courageous and eloquent man, a man of great conviction, a man who will stand up to the powers that be in the United States, which is why he will not win. He will not be permitted to win the Democratic Party nomination. So let me be the first to appeal to him as someone who with all my heart wishes him every success. Be the first to appeal to him to in parallel prepare a third party candidacy for when and if and when, probably when, the Democratic Party hierarchy which rigged it for Hillary and then rigged it for Joe Biden rigs it for Biden once again, who is close to announcing his candidature. So Bobby, please don't be fooled again. Not like Bernie Sanders. Don't do a Bernie Sanders. Be ready to go on your own as a third party candidate when the Democratic Party's grandees stitch you up, member of the party's royal family or not. The gardener, Joseph Borrell, an unelected, irremovable bureaucrat at the European Union Commission, was at it again today. You'll recall he's the one who said that Europe was a garden and that beyond its boundaries was a jungle. Not guaranteed when you're the foreign minister to win you many friends or influence many people outside of the European Union you're representing, deeply offensive, not least because very large parts of the European Union actually look more like a jungle than many of the parts of the world outside the garden of the EU. I'm dividing my time nowadays between Europe and China, and I'm in a position to tell you that China beggars belief. The pace, the scale of its growth of its vaulting, gigantic growth, beggars description almost. And I'll be trying over the next months to explain more of it to you, but accept the word of Claire Daly, MEP, who said it was jaw-dropping. And she's just back from her latest visit to China. The level of growth, the development of people's personal wealth, it is simply staggering. China has built 37,000 kilometers of high-speed rail in the last 10 years. The United States has built zero, zilch, nothing, none, not a single mile of high-speed rail exists in the United States. And China has built 37,000 kilometers in one decade, and it hasn't stopped yet. If you look at a map of the Beijing underground from 10 years ago and compare it to the Beijing underground now, you would not believe the level of development. Britain can't even lay 20 miles of so-called high-speed track between London and Birmingham to knock nine minutes off the journey. 
whilst these Chinese trains are traveling at 300 kilometers per hour. A flash goes by and it was a train full of people, business people, tourists, people of all kinds who are part of this rising tide of Chinese economic strength. China has, in my opinion, already overtaken the United States of America as the world's biggest economy, though China does not concede that and will be slow to concede it. It's part of the Chinese character to appear weak when you're strong and to appear strong when you are weak. Well, they say they're in second place. I say they're in first place. One thing is undoubtedly true, that the level of trade now in RMB, the Chinese currency, is advancing at such a rate that the value and the reserve currency utility of the US dollar is falling off a cliff. It's falling off a cliff because everyone is turning away from the dollar and towards Chinese RMB. And that's because people are turning away from America. Kennedy said today that Joe Biden had destroyed American foreign policy. Well, he didn't invent that destruction. He certainly accelerated it. And it was never a great foreign policy to begin with. But that is now being destroyed is self-evident to anyone with eyes. The interior minister in Turkey said today, and this is a direct quote, Turkey, a NATO ally, a candidate member of the EU, said the whole world hates America. Hates, he said, America. And don't speak to me, he said, of the European Union. The European Union is not a thing. Europe is now but a carriage in the American train, traveling not very fast because American trains don't travel fast but headed inexorably to the cliff. The Turkish interior minister was speaking for public opinion around the world. They hate America. Not because they hate Americans any more than I hate Americans. I've got American blood in my veins. My bookshelves are full of American authors. My music collection full of American artists. My sporting heroes. American sporting heroes. I've traveled north, south, east and west. I've spoken to large audiences from coast to coast. We love Americans, but we hate the role that the United States has played in the world. And we in Europe absolutely hate the way that we have been forced to commit continental suicide for the American determination to use the poor people of Ukraine as a spear in the back of Russia, a spear which is now broken. It is said, although it's sometimes unsaid, it is deliberately confused that the Ukraine is about to launch what they call a counter-offensive. It will not succeed. It cannot succeed. It cannot succeed because a nuclear-armed superpower can never allow itself to be defeated in a conventional war by its next-door neighbor. Put 
yourself in the Russian shoes for a minute. Could the United States allow Mexico or Canada to defeat it in a war using conventional weapons? It's a preposterous idea. This is existential for Russia, just like a Chinese-based Mexico or a Russian-based Canada could not be permitted to exist as an existential threat to the United States and would not be permitted to become so. So it is by definition impossible for the Ukrainian counter-offensive to succeed. But even leaving that aside, Russian power in eastern Ukraine is now so great that no counter-offensive can succeed, even on its own terms on the battlefield. The idea that Russia will permit a counter-offensive to take Crimea out of Russia or to recover Mariupol uh, back to the Western Ukrainian Kiev authorities is simply ridiculous. The people themselves have already decided. They are Russian people and they are going back to Russia. Indeed, they already have gone back to Russia. So this counteroffensive will achieve what? It can only achieve more bloodshed. And don't you think it's slightly strange that after a couple of days of fighting, the whole world is demanding a ceasefire in Sudan, but nobody wants a ceasefire in the Ukraine? Blinken said a ceasefire in the Ukraine is unacceptable, but he's demanding one in the Sudan. That and a thousand other reasons shows you exactly the nature of this proxy war for which the poor Ukrainian people have paid such a heavy price. There's much, much, much more of this because this is the mother of all talk shows. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Gerald Salenti is the publisher of Trends Journal and founder of the Trends Research Institute. He's my go-to man for trends, economic and sometimes political. And he joins us for the very first time on the Mother of All Talk Shows this evening. Gerald, it's an honor uh, to have you with us. I've followed you for a very long time. 
Uh, I know we'll mainly talk about the economy, but if you'll permit me a political question, uh, and feel free to decline to answer it. When Hillary Clinton said this week that Donald Trump will not be president of the United States in 2024, do you think she had some inside knowledge or is she reading the runes? And if she is reading the runes, do you read them the same way? Well, why believe anything Hillary Clinton would say, number one? And number two, being that you had that great hat on, I figured I'd better put mine on too. That <laughs> is, is a beautiful hat, Gerald. <laughs> it's this beautiful, hat, man. This hat was my father's, man, so rest in peace. And my grandfather I mean, brought it back from Italy in 1957, from uh, Avellino in Italy. So anyway, if you have your hat on. No, keep it on, please. Keep it. I got it's a battle of the hats. All right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, it, it's who knows, you know, uh, what's going on with Trump. And the, I, I have to tell you, when you look at the polls and by the way, yeah, I'm a political atheist. I don't I don't. And the whole system to me is a corrupt system. And, uh, you know, with their murderers and thieves by their deeds, you shall know them. And you mentioned a lot of them as I was waiting to go on the air. And so. Um, we were the first magazine in May of 2016 to call Trump a winner. And so Clinton hates Trump and she's going to do everything she can to destroy him. But there's also the feeling in America that most of the people are disgusted with the two parties as well. And nothing's going to change as long as the, uh, as I call them, Repulsivkins and Democrats are, are still in power. <laughs> <laughs> a phrase is born. Do you think Bobby Kennedy could maybe kick that trend? He seems, well, almost saintly by comparison. If you go back to my podcast going back into December, I said that the best ticket in America would be RFK Jr. and Judge Andrew Napolitano. And I've been saying RFK Jr. now since then. And today he's supposed to officially announce it. Yes, I think he could win it. I mean, think about it. This is a guy whose uncle was assassinated, the president of the United States. His father was assassinated. You think this guy has feelings and emotions that are different than anybody on the planet? I did a talk for Ron Paul, uh, the, uh, it was called The War on Us, back in 2021 in D.C., and I was the speaker. I was the speaker just before RFK Jr. And as he walked off the stage and his, with almost, you know, crying, you know, so emotionally about it, he said, I will fight to my death for freedom. And I believe him, you know, and, and the people, I think he could win. Uh, but again, when you look at the media and the way that they're, saying that he's running, I think I have an article right over here, actually, one of them. Yeah, I do. I think this is it. Yeah. This is from the New York Times. They call themselves the paper of record. I call them the, the toilet paper of record. This is on page. This is on page A18, buried, buried in the back of the paper. Kennedy Jr., Fauci critic, 
files for run for president. What the hell do I care if he's a Fauci critic? Is that a headline for? So what I'm saying to you, George, is that they're going to do everything they can to discredit him and keep the establishment in place. Because all these little low lives, these, I call them prostitutes, media whores that get paid to put out by their corporate pimps and their government whore masters, just keep bending down and sucking up to the powers in charge. And that's all they're going to continue to support. And they will attack anybody, anybody outside the club. It's a dictatorship of the prevailing orthodoxy, isn't it? And as Dr. Johnson said, that's the grimmest dictatorship of them all. And uh, that was true when the media was dominated by the toilet paper rag you've just held up there. Uh, but it has been true in this social media age also, uh, where oh, yeah. anyone outside of the prevailing orthodoxy must be crushed, falsely labeled, algorithmically strangled. How dare you not believe the crap that I'm shoving down your throat? If you don't believe the crap that I'm shoving down your throat, that's misinformation. Remember, when you get on an airplane, put on that mask. But when you eat and drink, you can take it off because COVID knows when you're eating and drinking and it won't bother you. You do what I tell you. Close down your businesses. Hey, but you can leave the liquor stores open because we make a lot of tax money from those liquors. Oh, oh, and when we open those restaurants up, when you walk in, you put on that mask. When you sit down, you can take it off and eat because COVID does not go at table length. And it knows when you're eating and drinking. So you do what I tell you. And, and stand one meter apart because the wind blows exactly in straight lines, one meter apart. It doesn't go up, doesn't go down. So you do what I tell you. That is America. That is Europe. That is China. The Chinese way you must obey. That's what has happened. Look, Italy was the first country to lock down after China. And then one after another. One after another. And they call it a pandemic. Everybody's calling it a pandemic. Here's the data. I just did this a couple of days ago. In the United States, well, worldwide, worldwide, 6,882,000 deaths worldwide. That's out of 8 billion people, which equals 0.09% of the world's population. In other words, 99.91% of the people, it's fine. Oh, and who died from this? People with type 2 diabetics, obesity, respiratory ailments, 2.3 pre-existing comorbidities. This COVID lockdown has done incalculable damage economically, spiritually, physically, mentally. The suicide rates off the charts. Crime escalating everywhere. As I say, when people lose everything and have nothing left to lose, they lose it. Our system of trend forecasting is called global nomic, making connections between different fields. You're going to see an economic collapse, the likes of which you've never seen before. I mentioned about the COVID war. 
You're not coming to work, work at home. Oh, and the geeks were the first ones to do that. Oh, and those high, oh boy, did they benefit from it too, the high tech industry. Oh yeah, we're ordering from home, we're Zooming from home, we're working from home, we're learning from home. Oh, their stocks boomed. Okay, now people are home week after week, month after month after month after month, they're saying, I've been commuting an hour and a half each way to work, getting up at five o'clock in the morning. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going, I'm not going to do it anymore. All right. So come in to work two or three days a week. The office occupancy rate in the United States, top 10 cities is 49%. All these huge office buildings are empty. I just came back from Chicago on uh, Sunday. I was there for a couple of days. Beautiful town, lived there for actually for six years. The restaurants on the beautiful area with the water in front of it and everything. Lunchtime, nobody's sitting outside. You know why? No one's going to lunch. They're not going to work. We are going to see an office building bust. The Silicon Valley bank bust is just the beginning. You have, I think it's about $20 trillion worth of loans in, in the whole commercial real estate sector. So now people aren't coming back to work. Let's say I had 10 floors of a building. I only need two anymore. How, am I, how, is the, how are the people that own these, these, these office buildings going to pay their loans? They're not. But don't worry about it. Because one of your questions is what, what's going to be the next war? As I say, when all else fails, they take you to war. Hey, you like the Great Depression? Followed by World War II. Hey, you like the dot-com bust? Followed by the war on terror. We're going to get that guy Osama bin Laden. Get her alive. And 88% of the people swallow the crap coming out of the mouth of a little boy with a pair of cojones smaller than a mothball, a daddy's boy born on third base, thought he had a home run, George W. Bush. They're going to do it again. And they're doing it already. They've gotten the, the Western people to hate Russia. Again, when I was a little kid, they had us hiding on the desks in case they had a bomb went off because of the Soviet Union. The people will follow like that. Joe, the, um, I'm almost speechless by uh, your eloquence, and there's so much uh, that we could follow up from that. Maybe another time. Let me turn to what I intended to interview you about. It is the dollar. Uh, for since Bretton Woods, the, re, the, the, the whole basis of the dollar as a reserve currency has been predicated upon oil being traded in dollars. This has fallen off a cliff so suddenly. If you look at the numbers, and I got them from you, between 1921, sorry, 2021 and 2023, uh, the accelerated pace at which people were abandoning the dollar monopoly has become so dramatic that if you express it in a graph form, it looks like the dollar is plummeting. How quickly do you see a day of reckoning for the dollar as the world's reserve currency? All right, let's go back and look at it. You mentioned Bretton Woods. And then something happened in 1970, I think it's 71 or 72. They took America off the gold standard. That was the beginning of the end. You were also talking about how the countries dislike America. 
They are tired of America's economic hegemony and its military hegemony. They've had it. You just saw Lula going to China and uh, the president of uh, Brazil saying that um, every day he said, I, I, I go to sleep and I wonder why are we trading in dollars? They've had enough. So now one of the covers of the Trends Journal, I think it was April 4th, was death of the dollar. It's not going to happen overnight, but there are always wild cards that you can't predict. And one of them is, and you've mentioned it, is if they take us off the petrodollar. And again, that happened also in the 70s. So when if they take us off the petrodollar, it's over. It's over. And now the, I want to make this very clear. The reason the dollar is strong is because United States interest rates are high. So it's a good bet to bet on the dollar when you have these high interest rates. And now on May 3rd, the bet on the street, 90% of the, is that they're going to raise it another 25 basis points, the interest rates. That will keep the dollar strong for a while. But the end has happened. It's going to be a steady decline. The world has had enough of America. As a Napolitano born in the Bronx, 1946, right at the height of America after the war, I am heartbroken to see how low this country has fallen. You were mentioning how you love America and what, so many things of it. You mentioned the music. The music of America is the soul of America. From ragtime to swing to R&B to rock and roll to Motown. And now it's no town. It's one bad rap. You look at the style, the dignity of my parents' generation when they came to this country, when it was the land of opportunity, and they were laborers, they worked in fish stores, and you see the pictures of their wedding and how elegant they looked. When this country had style, grace, and it was the land of opportunity, now it's the land of the bigs. You can't make this stuff up. What's that big management firm, uh, asset management firm? Black uh, BlackRock? What's the guy's Black name Rock. that runs it? Fink. All right? We've been finked. Joe Salente, I, I, I'm sure that I join every person watching this and saying, I hope you come back very soon. In fact, you and I Only should time. be a double act. Yep. We'll no, hit thank the road you for what as you a do. double act. Thank you for what you do. God I, bless I you. very much appreciate being on. Thank you. God bless you and look after your dad's hat. I hope my son looks after my hat as you have looked after that. Where is the next major war? Well, overwhelmingly on Twitter, it's Taiwan with the Persian Gulf in the Middle East coming in second and third. Although that's 30% of the people think it will be either in the Persian Gulf or the Middle East. What if it is in both at the same time? On YouTube, 67% Taiwan. Telegram, 68% Taiwan. YouTube community poll, 74%. Let's take a quick break. I'll be right back. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Where is the next major war? 70% think Taiwan. 
30% think the Persian Gulf or the Middle East. Who better than to speak to next but the one and only Professor Said Mohammed Marandi, Professor of English Literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran, and quite the best advocate of events in Iran and around the world from Tehran that I have ever seen or heard, and I'm very glad to say he's back with us now. Professor, uh, let's start with that question we're asking. Uh, overwhelmingly, people think there might be a war in China, with China, over Taiwan, in the Straits, in the South China Sea. But 30% of people uh, think that the next big war will be in the Persian Gulf or the Middle East. I must say I lean towards that point of view myself. What would you say to our poll? Well, it's sort of like fire and ice. I really don't know. Hopefully it will be neither. But uh, I think the chances for war in both uh, regions is, is pretty high. In the case of Taiwan, the United States is taking a position from which it can't back down. And Taiwan is a Chinese province, and the Chinese are not going to back down. So it seems that some sort of conflict is going to be inevitable unless the Americans back down at some point. Or in Taiwan, there is some sort of major political upheaval, and the opposition gains power by a huge majority or through some other means. And... Uh, uh, forces Americans to back down. In our region, while there is a lot of good news coming from uh, the Persian Gulf region, the rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and Yemen, Saudi Arabia and Syria, the Emirates in Syria, Kuwait in Syria, all of that is good news. And maybe the Turks will be able to come to terms with uh, the Syrians and withdraw, we'll have to wait and see. But I think the government in uh, the Israeli, in the Israeli government, the Israeli regime right now, is um, is pushing the country towards war, and the the uh, the faction in power now is um, it. I, I compare the the liberals in Israel and and the current extreme right wing government. Uh, I compare, compare them to Al-Qaeda Al -Qaeda and ISIS. And ISIS is tougher than Al-Qaeda. If, and, uh, and if, there's, if there's a battle between the two, and whenever there was a battle between the two, ISIS had the upper hand. And I think that the extreme right wing will have the upper hand in Israel. And I think they're going to push the conflict in uh, Al-Quds, in um, in uh, towards a, a situation where um, things will explode. The the situation in the region is not going well for the Israeli regime. It, Israel's source of strength comes from Europe and the United States, which are without a doubt declining powers. Every day that the war in Ukraine continues, uh, Western power declines just a bit more. And that has consequences for the Israeli regime. And with a rapprochement that's going on between Iran and uh, the country, other countries in the Persian Gulf region, I think that draws more attention 
to the actions of this very extreme right-wing government in Israel. So the potential for uh, a war in uh, in West Asia, I think, is just as high as in East Asia. Sobering, and we'll come back to East Asia in a minute, sticking to your neighborhood for a moment. Uh, lots of good news, as you adumbrated, but uh, all that good news is bad news for somebody else. And it's bad news for uh, Israel, and it's bad news for the United States. Question, therefore, is, do they sit back and watch the landscape transformed still further and all that good news bedding in and becoming deeper and more internationally uh, significant vis-a-vis -vis East Asia, vis-a-vis -vis Eastern Europe, Russia, and so on, the BRICS, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, or do they try now before it's uh, too late in a way to wreck or disrupt the process that's going on? That's the question I have in my mind. The smart thing would be for them to recognize the new reality and to try to deal with it in a rational manner. But I don't think that is what the Americans are going to do. But then again, the Americans don't have great options because they are fighting a war in Europe, effectively, uh, a war that is bringing down Europe in many ways. They are increasing tensions with China. I don't really think the Americans have the resources, the energy, and the will to get into a fight uh, in the Persian Gulf region or in West Asia. So that will leave the Israeli regime very vulnerable. And if the Israelis do something very stupid, like uh, bring down the Al-Aqsa Mosque, I think that uh, anything could happen and you will see those countries that uh, establish relations with the Israeli regime break off ties. You will see a huge amount of violence because there will be universal outrage uh, across the region. Those countries that have relations with the Israelis would not want to be seen uh, to, have, to be having anything to do with them. So, but then again, the, the new regime, the current regime, in Tel Aviv is extremely right-wing. And I, I th think that Netanyahu, uh, regardless of how uh, immoral he is, he's, he's more or less a hostage of this very right-wing faction because his fate is in their hands. If they dump him, he probably goes to jail. So uh, these people are very ideological. They occupy... Uh, a lot, most of them are in the uh, West Bank, and uh, they are determined to have their way. And they are—they are not politically correct like the liberals. They are—they uh, they are very clear and open about what they want to do to the Palestinian people and to Beitul uh, Mogadish. So, uh, well, the, or the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so we'll have to see. But again, I—I I, I don't see how the region can escape war. When will that war happen? I don't know. But for the at the moment, I feel that uh, 
the war, instead of being in the Persian Gulf, the, because earlier I would have said that the chances for war in the Persian Gulf were higher. Uh, but now I don't believe that, that anything in the Persian Gulf, anything bad will happen in the Persian Gulf because everyone is moving towards uh, a new uh, relationship and a rebuilding of relations in, 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 in the eastern part of West Asia. But I think now we have to keep an eye on uh, the Mediterranean. Now, as you know, I've been involved, perhaps too involved, uh, in this uh, part of the world uh, for more than 50 years. I have been uh, in the Palestinian issue uh, very, very closely indeed. And I have never known a time and never imagined that a time would come when short of nuclear war, Israel is outgunned now. The balance of military power uh, has shifted uh, decisively. Israel could be struck by missiles, increasingly powerful and sophisticated missiles, from half a dozen angles, maybe a dozen angles, from Yemen, from Iraq, uh, from Syria, from Lebanon, from Gaza, uh, leaving aside any direct involvement uh, from, uh, from the Islamic Republic of Iran, Israel cannot actually defend itself from missile attacks of hundreds, maybe thousands of missiles raining down upon it. So short of what you might call the Samson option, of destroying everybody and the whole region in a nuclear cloud, the balance of military power has shifted very, very decisively, begging the question, why would Netanyahu and his gang want to risk war in those circumstances? You're absolutely correct. Not, for example, in Lebanon, the uh, resistance or Hezbollah their assets are all underground. They're inaccessible to the Israelis. The, the Israeli regime, the only strong point is their air force. And I'm pretty sure that not only are Hezbollah assets well protected underground, but uh, I'm pretty sure they also have the ability to bring down those planes when the time comes. And probably the same is true in Syria as well. So the Israelis are not only vulnerable from, uh, from, from Lebanon and Syria and Jordan and Gaza, but also their assets in the Mediterranean Sea are vulnerable, and as you pointed out, in the Red Sea too. So they are in no position to fight a war. But the problem, I think, is that uh, the Netanyahu is trying to stay out of jail, and therefore, he has to go down the road that the extreme right wing, his extreme right wing allies have paved for, paved for him. And these people have a, uh, their ideology is basically pushing them in this direction. So I don't think that they are, uh, they're looking at the, uh, battleground or the potential battleground, as they say, in an objective manner. They are looking at it from a very emotional 
perspective. And I think it, there's also an element uh, of exceptionalism too, just like the United States. When a country, when a people have an exceptionalist ideology, I think it prevents them from seeing things as they are. They see themselves as invincible somehow. And that's one, one reason why I think the American government is in such a bad state, because administration after administration, they've been making decisions in this bubble in, in Washington. They see themselves, or at least they want to see themselves as invincible. So they keep, keep making foolish and stupid mistakes, which further diminish their power, but they can't see what what they're doing to themselves because they look at the world through that uh, expe- exceptionalist ideological perspective. And the Israeli regime, their ideology of exceptionalism and uh, supremacism, I think uh, for, makes them wish to see their potential adversaries as incapable and uh, um, and backward and and so on. So I think it's a combination of these two things, both that exceptionalist worldview, but also uh, the fact that the internal struggle in Israel has particular ca- characteristics today that we've never seen before. True. Uh, finally, Professor, uh, the uh, China has a long uh, track record of support for Palestinian rights, as indeed uh, has Russia and the Soviet Union before it. Uh, And China has expressed through the foreign minister uh, in the last couple of days uh, that uh, the need for meaningful negotiations, not the farce uh, that we've been treated to for the last uh, 30 years or more, but meaningful negotiations, uh, might be something that they might be interested in brokering uh, in the wake of the tremendous success that China has had in such things over just the last few weeks and months. Do you think there's any possibility of that? you think that has legs? Well, if you mean uh, between the Palestinians and the Israeli regime, I don't really think so. I think that since Oslo, those of us who are always very skeptical about Israeli intentions. We've we've seen uh, how the Israelis were colonizing the West Bank in a way in which uh, a two-state solution would be impossible. And I I say that uh, even though I don't even accept a two-state solution, because I think that an an apartheid regime is an apartheid regime, whether there is a two-state solution or not. The right of return uh, Palestinians having equal rights, all of that has to be uh, a part of the whole of Palestine. But that aside, uh, the, the Israelis from the very beginning never intended to allow for a real two-state solution. They were buying time. And the way in which they've colonized the West Bank, especially with these extremists, the, these very right-wing people, leaves really no space for a two-state solution. These settlers, these colonizers that have basically come from Europe and Western countries, they are not going to leave. And no one is going to be, no one in the Israeli political establishment is ever going to be able to remove them. So that's why I think that we are moving in a direction 
where the Israelis are ultimately going to lead uh, their country, their regime uh, towards war. And it will probably be a very devastating war. I don't think, I don't necessarily believe that the war will bring an end to the regime, but I think that it will, uh, it will diminish it significantly. And I think that will probably cause many Israelis to leave and many others to reconsider the whole Zionist project and the whole uh, apartheid system. But again, I can't predict tomorrow. So I, I, I have no idea really what will happen in the future, but I don't see, uh, I don't see any hope for a peaceful settlement unless uh, there are Israelis who are opposed to apartheid. There are Israelis who oppose Israeli Jews who oppose Zionism and who believe in equal rights. But at the moment, they're a small minority. Unless somehow the, the, there's a sea change in, in Israeli public opinion, I, I think that we are heading for some sort of com- conflict somewhere down the road. Professor Morandi, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much for joining. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. A big thanks to the people who support me on the Patreon page. I really have come to depend on the income from that. It costs a pound a week. Uh, the price, not even the price of a cup of coffee in an insalubrious cafe. If you think you could stretch to that, please support me on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. Now, the Moats team have added a tiered system on my Patreon page where you can become an official Moats graduate. How about that? I speak as someone who graduated from nowhere, uh, from the factory floor in Michelin. Uh, but you can become a Moats graduate and legend. Uh, you can give a regular donation to support the show and my work. You can now upgrade from a, a mere Patreon to a Moats graduate at £10 a month, as opposed to £5 a month, I think it is. Uh, and you can receive official Moats legend status for £20. I don't know what else you get, except if you call up, you'll be called a legend and put right through uh, onto the show. So that's £5 a week, the price, I'm told, of a pint, although I'm the last man in the world to even know what that even means. Uh, New patrons tonight, I'm really grateful to you. Chris, Steve Reynolds, uh, Juan Molina, Mo, Sejo, Eileen Gibson, Bruce, Daniluk, and Jason Buchweiss. 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 And David Nimmo has pledged to become a Moats legend. Thank you very much indeed to all of you. Here's some comments from my patrons. Andy, 
says, wow, Gerald Salenti was an awesome guest. He knows what he's talking about. 10 out of 10 for yet another awesome interview. Actually, I had hardly any need to interview him at all. He just spoke and so, so brilliantly. We definitely want to have him regularly. Teresa Kelly, my good friend in the US, says BRICS countries have become a huge military target the moment they formed an alliance in 2009. The warmongers learn nothing from their vile proxy war with Russia. Here's hoping all their upcoming heinous plans for China also backfire. And so see all of us, Teresa. Simon from Florida must surely be heading towards the status of Norma from Bristol. Agash flow on Twitter. He is indeed in the queue for legendary status. We'll give him a few weeks yet. Uh, James Lenahan says, I'm glad to see you're having Gerald Salente on your show. He has a great weekly economic journal that I subscribe to. Uh, could you ask the worldwide university to remember the people in Indiana and Ohio who are being poisoned while being told by the FDA, that's the Food and Drugs Administration, that they are fine from Shalom from Fort Collins, uh, CO. Is that Colorado? Uh, Graham Briggs Witt says, what's the latest on Julian Assange, considering Anne Sokoulos and the rest of the criminal set, as you say, Pompeo, and then there's Newland, etc. Indeed so. Harry is in Essex on the very Julian Assange. Harry, on you go, sir. Uh, hello, George. Uh, I, I apologise in advance because what I'm going is extreme. Explaining, I, I don't know whether I'll have sufficient, sufficient time, but it's about uh, explaining the mechanism in which the forthcoming UK local government elections can be hijacked lawfully, I hasten to add, and manipulated mm. to garner uh, for the release. Don't. Do you want me to go on? Yes, uh, go on, go on. You're welcome. We're not yeah. in the electoral period yet. Yeah. At least I don't well, think we are. And yeah. we're a global well, show. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I apologise to in other be able to rec and be able to do it in in their their own countries. But what this, she, she, I tell you what, Harry, we're going to try and get back to you because this line is seriously deficient. Uh, so we'll come back to you. Uh, YouTube comments. Chad Cochran says. Meanwhile, in the US, another train derails. Extra information, an average of three trains derail in the U.S. every single day. There were three major derailments in China in the whole of last year. Wow. And Dunk R says, Gigi, what about the Met Police arresting French national Ernest Moray in London for attending anti-Macron demonstrations in France? It was an incredible story. This is a journalist. They're always telling you about free journalism. A French journalist was required by the Metropolitan Police to allow them access to his mobile phone and his computer uh, under anti-terrorism laws because he had been demonstrating against Macron in France. Unbelievable. Pittsburgh Dude 87 says, Gerald Salente's 3G's guns, gold, and a getaway plan. Very good. The Happy Little Fox, a.k.a. Benji, says, why would they send F-22s 
Russia is using balloons. And Hymer Mobile says Exercise Global Thunder 23 started 14th April. And that will mean more bomber movements possible. That's where the B-52 and B-1 stories may have started. More on Google. Thank you for that. It's very important that we keep our eye on these things, not that we can stop them. Although the organization I co-founded, No to NATO, No to War, is going from strength to strength. If you haven't followed it yet on social media, please do so. If you haven't attended any of the events that we are organizing or supporting, please do that. It's vital that Britain has an anti-war movement. And for the last few years, it's had a poor imitation of an anti-war movement. And we are determined to change that. On the line is Simon in Florida, who's in a way our RFK correspondent. We're always delighted to hear from him. Simon, go ahead. Thank you so much, Mr. Galloway. Well, today, I think we truly have seen um, the political version. You'll be well aware of the term revolution in military affairs. Well, today in the United States, unfortunately, with very poor timing, I believe, we've had a revolution in political affairs because, unfortunately, Mr. Kennedy gave his speech at 5 p.m. London time, noon New York time, 9 a.m. Los Angeles time. I happened to be in a restaurant. I extended my lunch and listened to the entire one hour and 56 minute speech. And it was an incredibly powerful, poignant and truthful um, presentation. But I was looking at the 100 plus people in the restaurant all around me at thinking I'm the only person out of all of these people that is hearing this through my earpiece. And so I'm really concerned that in America, it's going to get summarized to five minutes on the late night talk shows, and people aren't going to understand the magnitude of what he has expressed. Now, you have correctly suggested that he was talking about Biden destroying America's foreign policy. And that was close, but what he actually said directly was America's foreign policy has collapsed, past tense. Not it's shaky, not I can fix it. It has collapsed. Then he said the Brazilians and the Saudis are pulling away from the dollar. We're spending too much on our military overseas. I want to bring the troops home and I want to close some of the overseas bases. And you can just imagine the military industrial complex who he named specifically military industrial complex, how their share prices were tottering and their boardrooms were shaking with fear. As he cited example after example from his uncle and his father being betrayed and assassinated by the deep state and how he was following in their footsteps and how his vision was to unite the political divide that exists and is mocked by the Iranians and the Chinese daily, how he was going to bridge that divide by, even though it might be somewhat unpalatable, telling Americans the truth. Okay. And that in itself was absolutely 
extraordinary. And why we are seeing already in the last two weeks preemptive strikes by the mainstream media who are portraying Mr. Kennedy as a anti-vaxxer lunatic. And he addressed that subject at length in his speech today and said, look, you know, in the last 60 years, the health of America's children has fallen terribly. And he quoted figures on autism and ADHD and childhood obesity and cited a report from the EPA in 1989 where had, they had explained that, in their opinion, there was a hard line at that point for um, chemical exposure that children were being exposed to. So he didn't say what he clearly believes to be the cause, but he said that it was imperative for America to get at the root cause of that problem and to address it sincerely, because otherwise the long-term care for the number of people now dealing with disability from childhood, not in retirement, but from childhood, was going to be costing America over $1 trillion per year. And he explained how over $16 trillion had been wasted on the COVID response, attacking former President Trump very severely for some of the decisions that he made on that, and then added in another $8 trillion that he felt had been wasted in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then he explained how when the dollar fell, the interest rates would go up even further and how America would be spending the good part of another trillion dollars just on servicing the existing debt. He grabbed hold of third rail after third rail after third rail in American politics as if he knew he only had a week to live. Yeah, well, God forbid uh, that that turns out to be true. It was, the bits I heard, extremely challenging. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, ferocious in his elegant way, uh, in his denunciation uh, of those who have dragged America down uh, to its current pass. But I didn't hear what he said about the Ukraine war. Can you enlighten us on that? Yes, I certainly can. He, he talked in detail about that. He mentioned that one of his relatives had served for their entire adult working life within the CIA and that he had respect for the average man and woman in that organization, but had great concerns about its leadership going back decades. He mentioned that his own son had served as a volunteer machine gunner fighting against the Russians around the city of Kharkiv, where Mr. Gonzalo Lira, who you've spoken to, is actually um, located. So he says that he's got close family connections with the situation, but that at this point, he fears that um, America is incapable of analyzing the situation, and as he called it, with the necessary nuance and complexity. And that after much consideration, he was coming to the opinion that uh, America's involvement in Ukraine was not in its national interest. And there are a lot of other pressing issues to deal with. And he compared it directly to Vietnam, which was starting um, at the uh, end of the Kennedy administration before he was assassinated. And he pointed out that even then, 
there were political figures who were pointing out that the war in Vietnam was taking away all of the resources on the previously announced war on poverty in the United States. And he called upon a veteran in the audience and he said, this man on the 1st of March received a telephone call that 15 million other Americans received telling him that his food stamps, which are like part of universal credit in Britain, it's um, literally to help you buy food. And we also have um, health support here, which is called Medicare. And he said that millions of people are being taken off Medicare and tens of millions of people are having their food stamps go from $280 per month to $25 a month. And he said, how can any person live on $25 a month when at the same time, we've now sent approximately $130 billion to Ukraine and that may not be in our best interest. So he made a very, very powerful presentation about Ukraine. He, he said that there needs to be future conversation. And he said that what's essential is for Americans not to call, and this is the exact phrase that he used. He said that one side shouldn't accuse the other of being Nazi lovers, and the other side shouldn't accuse the first group of being Putin lovers. He said it needs to be more sophisticated than that. And I think anybody with a good head on their shoulders would find it very hard to disagree with that sentiment. It's long overdue that America and the United Kingdom have a long, hard look at what they actually think they can achieve in Ukraine. Simon, keep us uh, posted. Be our correspondent on the campaign trail, if you would. Thank you so much indeed for that report. That's Simon in Florida on the launch of RFK Jr.'s presidential run. Uh, YouTube comments. Grizzly Bear says Scotland should elect Korach Rambler, the grand national winner, as the next leader. And Galloway Radar says British electric trains not to 60 in three days. <laughs> and uh, Moy Bill says Claire Daly needs to be running Ireland and get rid of the leprechaun. Indeed so. Uh, Ushman says the US empire is desperate and lashing out as the dollar is dying. Now, uh, time for one last call before the break. It's James in Canada in Ontario on James Melville from last Sunday's show. Go ahead, James. Yes. Uh, first, may I say that whenever I need a cheer up, I get your YouTube address to the U.S. Senate. It really it was beautiful. Thank you, beautiful. Thank you gave that man. Anyway, thank uh, you, sir. Mr. Melville, uh, on Sunday, I didn't uh, spoke uh, a number of things, but then he began to talk about social credit. Now, uh, yeah. I was. Fifty years ago, I was the vice president of the Social Credit Party of Canada. And so I know something about social credit. And there are several kinds of social credits, or at least two kinds of social credit in the world. Social credit in Canada was always a movement for monetary reform. In China, it seems to be uh, a, uh, uh, a ticket to to grade your your rectitude 
about what you do and what you don't do and how hard you work and everything like that. And it's something totally different from the social credit that we knew in Canada. And in Canada, when we were when we were successful 50 years ago, we had two provincial governments, in British Columbia and in Alberta, and we had 20 members in the House of Commons. I think the House was then about 260 uh, members. Um, and the thing is that that uh, this thing is China sounds like a, a surveillance of the whole population, and that's not the social credit that that we learned. Uh, there was, it of course, originated in Britain under Major C. H. Douglas uh, right after the First War. And uh, this uh, well, the, the thing is, sir. Uh, that your your social credit was social credit written in Canadian characteristics. Chinese social credit is social credit written in Chinese characteristics. Let a thousand flowers bloom. Uh, I've spent a lot of time now in China, and I can tell you that the vast majority, to all intents and purposes, I see no evidence to the contrary, most Chinese people support their government, their system, including its social credit aspects. Now, you might not like that. I might not like it here. I like it better in China than I would like it in Britain. Uh, that is for sure, because I don't trust the British government. Uh, I wouldn't trust them to go out and buy a loaf. But I would trust the Chinese government more. But it doesn't require me to support it, or you in Canada to support it. The good news is China is not trying to export its systems to us. China merely insists on its right to follow its own path, and Canada can follow its own path. All I would say to you in parting, sir, and Thank you for your uh, distinguished service and your call. All, all I would say to you is all the signs are that China's doing rather better than Canada. And it's doing rather better than Britain. It's doing rather better than virtually every place in the entire world. So they must be doing something right. But they're not asking, still less forcing you, me, or anybody else to adopt it in our part of the world. Thank you, James, for a fine call. Lance, the regular caller now from Canada on Iran. Always a pleasure, Lance. Go ahead, sir. You know, just a quick note on China. I went to, I broke my ankle a few weeks ago and I went to the hospital, right? Public health care was fantastic, of course. The Americans will not believe that. But, um, mm. They gave me crutches, they gave me a cast, they gave me Band-Aids, they gave me all kinds of these medical things. And every medical thing they gave me was made in China. So, uh, you know, where, where will we be? <laughs> you do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. We better hope that China doesn't start sanctioning us. What are we going to do with no well, Chinese-made goods? I know. Well, I know. I can't. Uh, the, uh, your, your NHS will be out of supplies. And they won't be able to afford the supplies the British oligarchy will sell them. So um, they can't afford them now. Uh, no, my thought, I think Iran 
before I think to admit, well, the Gulf is next uh, for war. I just believe that uh, Iran is next, and I believe that Israel is going to make some desperate move at some point. Um, the Taiwan thing can sort of, I mean, they, if they really want to hold China, they can hold them past Taiwan, not while well, they can try. Uh, but I think the Taiwan thing is a moot point, even if 99% of Taiwanese Taiwanese voted to reunify with China tomorrow. The Americans would find a, a guy who didn't want to reunify and wanted to separate yeah, and recognize yeah, him as the president. Yeah. Uh, they'd, they'd find a, a Taiwanese, Juan Guaido, and anoint him as the real leader of Taiwan. I personally think that the uh, former Kuomintang, the party founded by the founder of Taiwan, Kang Kashek, I personally think his party is poised to win the presidential elections uh, big. And the immediate danger of a declaration of so-called Taiwanese independence will therefore pass. It won't solve the crisis, uh, but it will at least make clear that the majority of Taiwanese have no intention of uh, seeking uh, independence, which will be recognized by virtually nobody beyond the Marshall Islands, Vuanatu, and, and, and a number of other small island uh, islets that I couldn't uh, pronounce, uh, who are the only people recognizing Taiwan today. Uh, only 12 countries in the whole world recognize a country called Taiwan. And I don't think that would change if the uh, KMT come back to power, it will, in a sense, freeze the issue uh, for at least some time. And therefore, I agree with you uh, that the Middle East and the Persian Gulf are the most likely uh, source of the next major war. But I think reading between the lines of what Professor Marandi was saying, and I must say I agree with him on this also, Iran is in a way too strong now for anybody to attack. If Iran was attacked by Israel, it would answer Israel directly and all of its friends all over the Middle East would answer uh, also uh, at the same time. And Israel would suffer a military defeat. And the question is, can Israel afford to suffer? A military defeat. Last word to you, Lance. Well, I think you're you're a little bit wrong on that because I think in the minds of North Americans, at least the people I know, uh, because we've developed this lore that Israel is a victim and Israel is in in self defense mode all the time, and you know, like I think beyond what people. If I just walk around the street and talk to anybody in my you know sort of middle class neighborhood, they'll all say Israel is a victim of. Arab evil. So I think, honestly, that Israel is the only country right now in the world that can get away with using nuclear weapons. They, they control the propaganda enough. I think they could use a couple. And I think, but then what happens? You know, do people back down? Do people capitulate? Do they let their oligarchs take control of their countries again? What do they do? You know, that's what I think. The, yeah, if, yeah, of course, if you use nuclear weapons, you first of all got to uh, bet on the fact that Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons. 
you'd have to gamble on that. Uh, and secondly, of course, uh, the wind shifts and the radiation uh, would be uh, very likely to be killing not just the Iranians, but killing uh, your own friends and your own forces uh, who are based in uh, the uh, countries nearby. Qatar has the biggest American base in the entire world. If you fired a nuclear weapon at Iran from Tel Aviv uh, or from the Negev, uh, how do you avoid that nuclear weapon uh, killing uh, thousands of American military personnel, for example? Okay, Lance, we'll have to continue that another night because Eve in Idaho is on the line. We haven't heard from him for some time. And I was growing concerned. Eve, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to make a, a remark uh, on the counter-offensive uh, of Ukraine, you know, that they are projecting. Uh, what I have observed is that um, Ukraine has a population which is seven times less roughly than Russia, and their casualty rate is seven times more than Russia. So you can argue that if they had equal population, when when you they lose one person on one side, it's like losing 49 person on the other side. And such a thing cannot last for very long. So what I believe is that the West has told Ukraine that they have to hold for one year about and that there won't be any counteroffensive from Ukraine, but the, but if there is something, it will be a NATO intervention uh, through Poland or country, you know, those Slavic countries which are very Russophobic, but it cannot be the Ukrainian. I think the Ukrainian are done or they will be done in two or three months by themselves. Now, either the war stops or it's a NATO intervention. There is no other um, situation, I think. That's my position. Well, there are three options, uh, two that you have mentioned, and the third is that the war continues and Russia takes uh, virtually all of southern and eastern Ukraine, perhaps all of southern and eastern Ukraine, leaving a rump state dependent on Poland, dependent on the EU, uh, and increasingly dominated by Poland. Uh, Poland would not necessarily annex those parts of Western Ukraine. It has long claimed as its own. It wouldn't need to annex them. It would uh, Finlandize them uh, and effectively become a single state of Western Ukraine and Poland. Uh, that would have major implications for NATO, of course. Would Article 5 still apply? Uh, to any conflict between Russia and Poland in Western Ukraine? Can you change your boundaries and still be protected by Article 5 of the NATO Treaty? Uh, so that's a third option, Eve. Uh, but you're right, either the war has to stop or NATO has to intervene. My money is, for what it's worth, on the war stopping. I think that uh, that China and Brazil and others uh, will soon, I have no inside knowledge on this, but I, I, I read it uh, written between lines 
uh, that, uh, that China and Brazil and others will present uh, a plan which takes care of Russia's vital interests and looks after uh, the autonomy of the people in the territories that have been liberated uh, and allows them the right of self-determination, which uh, the British state allowed in Scotland, for example, um, which the uh, British state has allowed for in the north of Ireland with the possibility of a border pole leading to the departure of Northern Ireland from the British state and uh, reunification with the Irish state. But we'll see. We'll keep a close eye on it, Eve. Thank you very much indeed for the call. Good to have you back. Uh, Rob is in Toronto, wants to talk about Taiwan. Go ahead, Rob. Good evening, George. I'm going to try to skew the vote of your uh, poll with my theory on why uh, the chance of a war with Taiwan right now is probably just uh, about zero in my view. Um, the theory is that, and I think last time when I called in, we talked about this, uh, the U.S. was trying to build up a coalition of the willing 2.0. And yep. um, it doesn't appear to be going too well. You know, when I look at uh, the Taiwanese themselves and particularly mainland Europe, I mean, it's clear to me that they're all out. Uh, they're looking at Ukraine and saying, no, thanks, yeah, I agree. no thanks. Uh, 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 no, another one, yeah. I, I, agree, I agree with that, Rob, but they do have uh, Australia and Japan, don't they? Well, that's my, I don't think so. I, I really don't think so. When I think about it, I think when this was all cooked up, they thought that they had India in the bag. And and they and India was never in the bag, and now they're scrambling to find other partners. I I can't see a country like Japan or South Korea. They're too pragmatic to throw their economies away to get into a war with China. So who are we left with? To your point, we're left with the United States, Canada, the UK, and Australia. And I can tell you, coming from Canada. There's no appetite to go to war with China. I mean, you know yourself, there's there's a huge Chinese population here. We're friends with these people. We work with them. We marry them. We don't want to go to war yeah. with them. I suspect it's yeah. the same in Australia yeah. as well. So I, I think that... Yeah, although no we're living in time, whatsoever. Rob. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, all of that. Very, very good call. Uh, but we do live in a time where rulers don't care what our appetite is. Rulers don't care uh, whether we support them or not. They are the rulers and they will do what they will do. Germany is the most perfect case in point. Um, the vast majority of Germans can see what's happening uh, to their country. Uh, I was just listening to one at the next table to me uh, in a restaurant just before coming on the air. They absolutely know what is happening to Germany? It's a mess, said the German guy, uh, relentlessly being grilled on his first date by a Danish woman uh, about the political situation on the continent. And he, uh, he, was, um, he was blunt about it. The situation in Germany is a mess. Now, they haven't all drawn the right conclusions, not yet, but they all know that it is a mess. But the German government, carries on regardless. 
that is uh, a caveat to the point that you make. However, you made it extremely well and cheered me up no end. Thanks, Rob. In Toronto, Nunya Business on YouTube says, George, tell Professor Morandi that he needs to set up his own YouTube or Rumble channel. We need to hear more from his part of the world. Professor, please take note. Our final Super Chats now. Thanks so much for donating tonight. James Warren Bay sends two US dollars. Maurice Perry sends 10 Swiss francs. Much obliged, Maurice. Dean Mia sends £1.99. Happy Eid, Powerful Passion by Gerald Salente. And Richard White sends 9.99 US dollars. Thanks, Richard. Mark Slater, 10 Australian dollars. Thanks, George, for all you do. We are all in a spiritual war and we need to choose sides. Linda Petit, a longtime supporter, sends 10 pounds. Thank you, Linda. Sully Saad sends $9.99. Thank you, Mr. Galloway. Thank you. And Faramak Zaharia sends five US dollars. America has lost the war in Southwest Asia, which is why you can speak of the new world order today. Uh, that doesn't include the West. Jason Stewart sends £4.99 and Jamila Asfu sends £5. For me, Europeans make me angry. This war is not our war and they are fighting for other people's power. Jamila, I couldn't put it better myself. Uh, sometimes some people think that I take some kind of schadenfreude or glee at the poor state of our peoples in the European continent, but nothing could be further from the truth. It didn't need to happen. Uh, the sun didn't have to set in the West because it was rising in the East. We could have had two suns. We could have all basked in the warmth of one sun with each cooperating with each other, trading with each other, investing in each other, learning from each other. We could have the uh, Muzaffar, the Martian from California, uh, if he was able to observe amity on the earth rather than endless enmity and violent struggle and strife. Uh, that's what we would have done, could have done. Hope uh, it's not too late, but probably it is. The level of political consciousness in Western countries is so weak with the possible exception of France and the always potential volcanic ferment uh, of, of Germany. Uh, but in the rest of Europe, uh, frankly, the rulers can do what they like. And in Britain, perhaps more than any other part of Europe. We are being beggared. We are being robbed. Our health service is being destroyed in front of our eyes as the opportunity cost of sending billions to the war in Ukraine and now emptying this week our inventory of all of our military hardware uh, to go uh, to Ukraine. And if any one European country were to declare that it is officially entering uh, this war, uh, the overwhelming favorite for that country would be Britain. And so, it's a very sorry uh, state of affairs, and I take no uh, pleasure from it at all. 
I've been given a lot of thought if I have uh, a couple of minutes. Mary Capadia says, if only Police Scotland operated in Westminster, we might know where all our billions have gone to. Well said, Mary. Uh, but I, I have been giving a lot of thought to the death of Empire, looking at the example of the death of the Roman Empire, which is, I think, analogous to the fall of the Western Empire, essentially the American Empire, that I'm absolutely convinced we're witnessing right now. And looking for comparisons uh, between the two. Uh, and three of the most significant similarities are the overextension of the empire's military power, biting off more than it could chew, uh, more than it had the soldiers uh, to implement. The wish became the father of uh, the reality, and wishes and reality are not the same thing. You can sit in your imperium and sanction people and order them to do this or that, like borrow, telling the Chinese that everything depends on their behavior as if they were school children and he, the headmaster. Uh, you can sit in your citadel and give these kind of orders, make these kind of plans, but they are, uh, they are uh, built on sand. They are castles built on sand. And so the first similarity between the decline of the Roman Empire, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and the decline and fall of the Western Empire is that overextension. A point is reached where more people are against you than you can successfully defeat, uh, because you can't fight them all one after another. One day they will realize that they have to stand up to you together. And that is what is now happening and that pace. The second uh, significant comparison is the debasement of the currency and the bankrupting of the economy through that overextension and other things. And that too is a very clear comparison. Uh, the American empire is based on paper dollars, uh, which uh, to quote Gerald earlier, uh, is only paper worthy of a single use, or very soon will be. Uh, it's not based on gold, as it was before 1972. It's not based on commodities, for America produces virtually none, at least by comparison with its competitors and declared enemies, who've got all the commodities, we've got all the capital, but what is the capital but pieces of paper, not worth the paper that the numbers are written on. And that's before you even look behind the screen at the whole issue of derivatives. You heard earlier from Gerald about the debt crash in office property, uh, which is literally just around the corner. Uh, if you begin to look more deeply into the derivatives market, you see that it makes the subprime mortgage market looked like a tea party by comparison. It's all based on smoke and mirrors, on paper that isn't worthy of what is written on it. And the third 
This is the most controversial I accept. The third reason for the decline and fall of the Roman Empire was the moral cancers running riot within it, uh, the moral degeneracy of the Roman Empire became legion and was carved on walls. Statuettes were made of it. The extraordinary debasement of our culture in the West has become, well, I could spend three hours talking to you about it, uh, from, from, from gender to uh, child sex uh, exploitation to uh, extreme pornography. There's a, the West has become a kind of crazed nymphomaniac with no morals, where anything goes, where you'll do anything with anybody, to anybody. And you don't care that the children are watching. In fact, you might bring the children along and demonstrate it in front of them. This kind of moral, unhinged degeneracy that is Western culture now doesn't take two minutes to search for. If you go onto the internet, listen to some of our young people, watch on the social media platforms from TikTok to YouTube and uh, the rest, the West has gone bananas. And all that was sacred is profaned. And all that was solid has melted into air. And these three things are all directly comparable to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. All empires must end as the statue of the base of the great Ozymandias of Egypt said, Gaze upon my works, ye mighty, and tremble. But all of his works had fallen, and the sand had covered everything. That's, I think, where we're headed, I'm sorry to say. All I can promise is that we will cover it as carefully, truthfully, and openly, as it is possible to find anywhere in the media. That is a promise I can give you. Whatever your point of view, you are welcome here at this open university of the airwaves. And we would welcome your calls, your contribution, your input into the mother of all talk shows. I'll be back, God willing, on Sunday, at the earlier hour of 7 p.m. Remember that and do check time differences. 7 p.m. UK time for the Mothership, the Sunday edition of the Mother of All Talk Shows. Be there and bring another viewer with you. Why don't you? Good night.